chillin' and uh, you will hear about the eliminating of the negative and the accent on a positive. And gather round me, chillin', if you're willing, and sit tight while I start reviewing the attitude of doing right. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird and Friends. Hello, Frugalistas, and welcome. Today, I have a special guest. Welcome, Kate Crowhurst. Thank you very much for having me. This is lovely. Thank you for being here. Kate is a financial literacy educator. I met her in Canberra last year, and of course, Canberra is quite a small place, and there aren't that many money creators or people who work in the personal finance space. So I was especially keen to connect with her. She blogs at Money Bites, which is the name of her website. And previously, she worked as a high school teacher where she published books on literacy skills. And through that, she noticed that financial literacy was not included. Later, she studied and researched financial literacy education at the University of Melbourne and then the University of Cambridge. Sounds very posh. I'm sure we'll talk about that. She then worked on Australia's National Financial Literacy Program and was listed on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list in 2018 for her work on that. It's a great honour to have you here, Kate. Thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to this. <laughs> so am I. So let's talk about financial literacy. Why is financial literacy such a big problem and an issue in Australia? I think it's just something that's not explicitly taught and it's not equally accessible to all. So what prompted me is I certainly wasn't given a background in financial literacy. I grew up in the Middle East rather than Australia. But when I got here for university, it wasn't something that was addressed. So when I got my first paycheck, one of my first memories is seeing someone called Pay AYG, mm -hmm. Pay As You Go Tax. I now know what that is. But I was looking and just going, why are they taking my money? <laughs> what is this super thing? No one's asked me my permission for this. And it was really interesting because no one has that explicit conversation with you around tax, super, managing your paycheck and what you should know before you get into hot water. So what I was seeing is particularly I was teaching in a low socioeconomic suburb of Australia and I was seeing a lot of parents either struggling with debt and just noticed that I know it was something and I know money was something that perhaps was discussed in terms of there isn't enough, mm. but it wasn't something we were teaching students about, well, how can you manage it? How can you grow your income? How do you get your first job? These were not things we were explicitly teaching. And if you don't explicitly teach something, it's not going to be ex equally accessible to all. You're really relying on parents to come in and do the rest. And that makes it a bit of a postcode lottery and indeed a parent lottery as to whether or not you get a financial literacy education in Australia. Yeah, I agree with you there. I think growing up, my mum was a business owner, a very successful one. She was also a very successful property investor. So we had a lot of discussions around the dinner table about negotiating for property, for real estate about income from her business, all these types of things. But not everyone has those kinds of conversations, do they? And I was always really amazed living in Melbourne. We were in one of the kind of blue ribbon suburbs growing up. But my dad worked across the West Cape Bridge in an area that was more of a lower socioeconomic area. So he worked for the Department of Defence as a scientist, but his laboratories were in a, in, in a different area. And the local mall there, the shopping mall, which I think was the, is the one that's on Kath and Kim that gets profiled a lot, is huge. And this is, you know, a very poor socioeconomic area, but you could see that what people were spending was huge. But I think sometimes when you don't have a lot, 
when you do get your first paycheck, it's like freedom, isn't it? You want all the things you've never been able to have. Absolutely. I know as soon as I got my first paychecks, they went on clothes, shoes, everything you could. And I have been to Fountain Gate Shopping Centre from Kath and Kim. (laughs) (laughs) It is really interesting. You see a lot of those shopping centres, clothing is quite cheap. And in today's culture, it is a thing of trying to amass as much as you can. You see lots of clothing at cut price sale prices. And you can completely understand the ethos of if marketing is telling you you need something new, you need something new. And if it's right there, why not just go get it? Well, exactly. And if all your friends are doing that and your parents are talking about their latest big screen TV and that's your culture and those are the things that are important, well, that's what you'll gravitate to. And it's really easy to be judgy about that, isn't it? Completely. The key thing is I was seeing people for the first time talk about how they were going to spend their first paycheck and things. And I just suddenly realized, I'm like, but I'm not, I'm not teaching you anything different and I'm meant to be your teacher. And I'm meant to see you for a lot of subjects. And yet I know at no point are we teaching you what you could be doing instead. It really highlighted for me, if it's not happening in my school, it's probably not happening in other schools. And I know a lot of people go, oh, it's in the curriculum. It's a few lines in different parts of the national curriculum. The national curriculum is then interpreted differently by every state and territory who do their own version. And then it relies on a teacher and a school to pick that up and make it a reality. And indeed, there's so much often stuffed in there because lobbyists really lobby to have their input in that curriculum document, that often it doesn't end up being taught. And you can kind of see it as a production process from being in Department of Education, getting done right through to what happens in the classroom. But it's really the impact stage is what that teacher decides to take something and interpret it as. Mm. So for me, I just saw that there was so much variation in there that it wasn't something we could currently guarantee. And that really motivated me to do something about it. That's yeah, very interesting. My children's school is quite focused on this and their grade fives and sixes have an entrepreneurial scheme where they have a marketplace every year. And there's one teacher in particular who's very keen on these things. But I can see it is very teacher driven, isn't it? Absolutely. And I used to be a teacher. I'm so never going to judge teachers. It can often be a really thankless job. I think my perspective is I could see that it wasn't being taught. I knew that I did other things like financial literacy books by making things that didn't exist because I knew they were needed. And from a similar perspective, I wanted to really study and understand financial literacy so that I could do something similar and provide what was needed so that teachers could get on and do their job. A lot of the time, I think we expect them to do everything. And my perspective was, I think we need to create more resources and more tools or programs that they can pick up and use rather than having to reinvent the wheel every time with what they do. What are some key things that teachers can do to help their kids in the classroom? I think you've been discussing money as a concept. When it came to my experience, we didn't discuss it until we got to year nine and 10 and we did economics. It's a little bit in there when you get to history, but really looking through and emphasizing what's there And not being afraid to get external expertise in as well. There's a lot of people who run programs, whether or not it's about literacy, whether or not it's about social skills, not being afraid to get people in and get them to do some of that explicit teaching as well. I know school banking is something else. Um, Oh, that is such a controversial topic. That is such a controversial topic. (laughs) So let's talk about school banking there. Let's go right into the controversial (laughs) topic right there. (laughs) That's such a loaded one because... I think Dolomites really set it off. Dolomites is the Commonwealth Bank program whereby they go into schools 
And as a result, many people pick up a Commonwealth bank account and they keep that throughout their life. And I think so for Commonwealth, it's big money, big business. They don't charge for those workshops, but they end up making the money back because you get customers who I think a lot of us are quite lazy and we don't really think about our bank accounts that often. If it works and it's not broken, we don't need to fix it. And that kind of attitude, which is understandable because life often takes precedence, means that if the Commonwealth Bank gets you at a young age, they've got you for a large portion of your life. And there are other banks going into schools for similar reasons. Some of them use consultancies to run their programs. So I think it's about looking at that and going, yes, there's a market for school banking, but I'm not quite sure if we should be marketing banks to kids at the age of 10. Mm. And at the very least, tell them what's out there and let them know here are all the available options, then make your choice and maybe don't be loyal to a bank because they're certainly not going to be loyal to you as a customer. And younger than 10, really, my eldest, he had a school banking program account. Once again, the Dolomites account. I think he started that in grade one or it might have been earlier in kindergarten. And it was a school mum who was doing it, really. There was no real pressure, but she would take the contributions for the passbook and she would take them into the bank. And I had no idea till much later than uh, that a lot of schools were given a contribution by the bank to be part of this program, that in fact they were being paid to be part of this program. I don't see that any irreparable damage has been done to my kids. They've since changed schools. They no longer have access to that program. And I do wonder that if you don't have a banking assistant, what is there in that gap? Because at the moment they're not learning about compound interest. Absolutely. I think at this point, there really wasn't anything. A lot of principals say no to school banking for that reason. They go morally, don't know if this is a good idea to be part of, and there really isn't anything to fill that gap. So we're working on an independent program at the moment. Being a teacher, my intention was always to get back into school classrooms. So I think if it's there, it's like an itch. If you love teaching people, particularly I was high school, that really doesn't go away. We're working on an independent program that could be online so it could be accessible from anywhere in Australia but something to really fill that gap because I believe that teachers aren't financial literacy experts and they shouldn't be. Teachers train particularly in high school, primary or general but high school train in really specific subjects and I think we're already asking them to do a lot. Really what I'm working on is trying to create a program that fills that gap for teachers so that you can get on teacher English or history and there'll be something in that place for a student to access at any point. And particularly online, because we know a lot of students are having to study from home right now. That's been something that a lot of students have had to do in regional areas as well. If you don't have access to a school, or if you need to be homeschooled for whatever reason, the intention of putting it online is really driving home that message of financial literacy is a core life skill. It must be equitably accessible to everyone. Mm. Especially too, because there's so many different voices out there now. Like I'm thinking back to my childhood where things were still largely cash-based. There were a couple of banks in the main town. There was nothing was online. I mean, the internet wasn't even around. But now you've got so many complexities, so many different credit cards, so many different online ways of managing your money, so many different streaming services. Like it's, I feel like almost every week I have to make financial decisions about things that have crept up on me, trials that I've experimented with and forgotten to cancel, comparing different online deals, avoiding overseas transaction fees. There are so many complex areas. And if you're not taught about this, you just wouldn't notice, I don't think. No, absolutely. And I think 
I feel like I'm still a young person, but I've seen people younger than me coming into those markets, particularly grappling with things like afterpay for the first time or get it now and pay later services. Klan is also entering the Australian market. And I think they're being marketed in a certain way that maybe doesn't match the reality. People are kind of seeing it as a form of free money because you get the thing, you'll worry about it later. So long as you've got a job, you'll be fine. I think we don't really plan for emergencies like COVID where you could lose your job. It Mm. could be something where unless you have an emergency fund, how are you going to pay for those things you've bought? And I think unless people are explicitly taught that before they use those services, they can end up getting into a lot of trouble. There was a really interesting Mamma Mia article recently about someone who had got stuck into buy now, pay later services. And they, they would be the ones to defend those services and defend their behavior when people criticize them. But then they reflected on the fact that they got stuck. They were in the cycle of constantly getting new things and then having to pay them off later. And it just, it builds a bit like a mountain. You mentioned compound interest earlier. I see compound interest as like a snowball at the top of the hill. You push it and as it goes down, it collects more and more. And I think that pressure is really felt by people who can jump into those services and then are dealing with the consequences later because those fees, the more you buy, they just build and build and build. Yeah, exactly. And when you're young, there's so much optimism too. Through my education, I guess, through the school system, I had this sense of optimism that I'm going to graduate, I'm going to get a fabulous job, I'm going to end up going to be a CEO, I'm going to be an ambassador. The sky's the limit. And the reality is that it is actually a lot harder to get to the top. Even if you do get very good grades at school, like I did, and at university, like I did, it is still really, really hard to earn those kind of big incomes. And it's not the reality for everyone. And then, of course, we've had 29 years of good, positive economic growth up until this year. Absolutely. So I graduated from university in the global financial crisis. And so it wasn't formally a recession on paper, but to people graduating, it was terrifying because all the graduate programs dried up. There was the equivalent of a freeze because the graduate program placements were cut or they just weren't being offered that year. And you had all these people just suddenly not be able to get into the jobs that they'd wanted. So a lot of friends ended up staying on at university for longer and doing just another degree in the hope that, you know, if I stay on, hopefully next year will be better, (laughs) which was a good choice for some. People would retrain. That's often a good one. So it's really interesting. I think we're seeing a lot of people, people entering their 30s now who have those skills in place. And perhaps it might not be as scary. It's definitely scary for people younger than that. But those people who graduated in the GFC, it's so interesting because a lot of them would have experienced that before. I think hopefully we're going to be a bit more resilient with this one. Mm, I hope so, although I did still see a lot of optimism. I mean, I know no one could have predicted the pandemic. Some people who follow climate change closely might have been able to predict the bushfires. Certainly we've been in drought for a long time and there were indicators. But we had been talking for about a year about how the global economy was not good Mm. and hints from the Reserve Bank and others, that we ought to prepare for tough economic times. But it seems that not everyone got that we might get into a recession. It almost felt like we were like the Titanic, that it couldn't happen to Australia's economy. Yeah, absolutely. And something you've seen recently is people buying shares, Mm. some for the first time. And I love that they're buying shares, but maybe it's something to bear in mind that the economy, if you're seeing the Treasurer warn about going into a recession, that's about to take a nosedive. And maybe buying shares right now may not be the best thing if you haven't got things in place like an emergency fund in case you lose your job. If you haven't got savings in place as a buffer, 
it might not be the best thing for you to be buying shares. I honestly don't think most people know what a recession is, though. I was having a chat with someone about it, and I think at one point they ran out of synonyms for the word bad. And they, apart from that, they knew it was a terrible thing, but they didn't, couldn't clarify exactly what it was. I think it's really interesting, particularly because a lot of young people haven't been through it before. They may not know the effects that come with a recession and the impact it can have on them. The number one thing for me is always the emergency fund and the buffer. Mm. Because no matter what life throws at you, it's just that cash you can draw on. Yeah, I agree. A lot of people don't understand. And of course, the, the technical definition, as you know, is two consecutive quarters of negative growth. The treasurer called it early because the end of the first quarter was negative. Although interestingly, it was only a low negative. I don't know if you've been following this, but they've been talking about the toilet paper effect that the hoarding mentality that was seen in the second half of March helped to give an, an artificial rise to the economy because people were stocking up with items but we're ex- well there's only so much toilet paper you can buy really I guess <laughs> I really wish I bought shares in Kleenex um, it was so interesting actually I, d- I don't know if you attempted to get toilet paper during it but there was one Sunday morning where I think I just had a bit about enough and uh, I went you know what I'm gonna go down to the supermarket and get my toilet paper it's gonna be great there was a huge queue outside of Coles stretching outside and then the moment they opened the doors people just started running I'd never seen behaviour running through the aisle, finding different points of entry to the store to try and run and get their toilet paper. And you just went, I, I, I don't know if this is worth it. So at that point, I just turned and walked away. And there wasn't any on the shelf because they were having supply chain issues. But I just, I kind of just went, I don't know if this is worth it and walked away. But it is really interesting. Hopefully we're coming to the end of the pandemic, but I just was reflecting during it. You do see the best and worst of people at that time. Because there were people buying it for others, but there were people, you're right, just hoarding and trying to build up a stock. I think it's really interesting. Trying to remove the judgment from that, I can see that people are scared in the same way they are when people talk about recession. They may not know what it is and they're scared, and that kind of builds. But it was just a really interesting point. I actually took a recording on my phone of the experience. (laughs) So I just went, this feels like, I feel like I'm in a documentary. So I think I'm just going to record this just to remember what that feeling was like. We haven't had anything quite as intense in that. I definitely have taken photos of empty shelves with all the pasta or the rice or the toilet paper and everything gone. I think the first weekend when it was starting to happen, we were actually at Costco and we were at Costco to actually buy toilet paper. And this was before the shortage. And it was because we were down to eight rolls, which doesn't sound like a lot, but we have an Airbnb. So we always buy in bulk. So we've got enough to service that. And we were walking round and round Costco and we thought it must have moved because it's not there. And, you know, it's one of those things that they're quite famous for. They're, they're large, large packs. My husband, Neil, was asking the staff and they said, oh, no, no, there's just some problem with it, but there's more back. There'll be more back in stock. Like no one knew at this stage that this was happening. It was all a bit scary. But thankfully, we did have supplies and someone had who gives a crap. They sold me a box. So I, I had that. So we, we're fine. And that's the thing you hope we see during the recession as well, um, which I think we're starting to, is you did see a huge community spirit context. We'd had the bushfires where I think that had kind of been engendered. And then during the first stages, I think you were seeing a lot of people go, I'm going to share what I have. Of course, you did have the viral videos. The one that stands out is that woman and her daughter defending their eight packs from people who needed some. And that's always going to happen. You're always going to get that. But the community spirit was really nice. (laughs) 
just reminds me of a really funny video of I think it was a guy in the UK and talking about how he'd gone into shop and he couldn't find something and then he was outside and he'd asked all these people and he said, oh, it's really nice. People just gave me stuff. And then he's sort of putting stuff on the table and you see he's got a gun with him. So he got up to people and threatened them. He said, oh, people really lovely. They gave me stuff. But it is so different, isn't it, to the height of the bushfires and the incredible outpouring of generosity we saw January, February, how people were were willing to donate quite a lot. Absolutely. One thing I started to learn more about, and fans of The Good Place will be familiar with this, is effective altruism, the idea of what we owe to each other or giving. People who haven't seen The Good Place, you really should see The Good Place, it's a show about people struggling to become better in the afterlife and struggling to, with the concept of what they owe to each other, how you can give to others to be a better person. I came across effective altruism pretty much during the pandemic and in the mood after the bushfires. Because I think you saw a lot of people after the bushfires still wanting to help, still wanting to contribute. Because when you see that hopelessness of seeing people lose everything, I think the only thing you can do is go, how can I help you? And effective altruism is the idea of maximizing what you give. So the idea of measuring, for example, if you can give to a charity, how will that money be spent? There are effective altruists who then see it as a way to address poverty. But I think you can apply that to Australia in terms of when we're seeing situations like the bushfires, like the coming recession, how can we give with what we have to have the biggest impact? And I think a lot more young people are really into that idea of giving and contributing to their community. If you don't have a lot of money, it's their time and their skills, because I'm seeing much more volunteering work on the CVs I get. And if they have money to spare, what are the charities that I really care about and really passionate about, and that I could either give part of my paycheck to, or again, the skills I'm building towards, how can I contribute those towards an organisation? Thank you for sharing. And I, I agree, giving is just so amazing. As you know, I'm on a joyful giving quest to give away a number of items this year. It was originally going to be 366 items. And as we go, we're not even halfway through the challenge yet. I'm already in excess of that. So now I'm aiming for 1,000. That's fantastic. I've slowed down a little bit because it's winter and just having that winter inertia. But I know it's going to come back in, in spring. But what has been really amazing about this, like I've done this personally to declutter and to be more of a minimalist. And in our case, because it's a second marriage, we're combining households. We've got a lot of stuff that we need to get rid of. But just how much joy it brings to me personally, how much better our lives are because we don't have stuff. Like the amount of people who come to my apartment and say, I can't believe that you fit so much in. You've got two young boys. And also to how much I get back in return. Like I don't give with the aim of getting things back, but because it opens up that share economy with my friends, I now get stuff back. It's phenomenal. Absolutely. And I think it's really interesting. We're often fed this idea, particularly when it comes to money, of it's about amassing, it's about growing, it's about maximizing what you have. And I think you're really seeing this, particularly if you look at our, the billionaires who are in the public eye, your Bill Gates, even to a certain extent, your Jeff Bezos's. But definitely with Bill Gates, you're seeing their focus really shift more and more towards how can I improve the world around me? Mm. There comes a certain point where the money you make doesn't bring you any further joy. If you're satisfied, if you've got enough in the bank to last you for the next few years of your life, it's what can I do with the money I have to leave a legacy behind? And that's something I've been really focusing on with my own money in terms of how do I use my time? How do I use my skills to build a legacy so that you're improving the world around you? 
Mm, I think that's really important. I'm not quite at that stage where I am a multi-billionaire who can <laughs> a huge kind of fund. But there is that question too about do you wait? Like Warren Buffett was criticised for a number of years because he didn't contribute. But of course now he's a major philanthropist along with his friend Bill Gates. And there are a number of companies, particularly in Australia, who are taking that pledge of donating at least 1% of all their earnings to profit. And this concept of giving a little bit within your means as you go, I think is really important. Absolutely. And I think you're seeing as well, there are particularly companies where I think they're seeing what's happening at the moment with our economy, and they're needing to reach out and support small and medium enterprises. The majority of businesses in Australia are SMEs or small and medium enterprises. We do have our large organisations like Canva um, and other ones. I know, one. an amazing story. Oh, completely. Or Alassian is the other one. You see their stories, they're doing fantastically. But what makes a real difference, with, and I mentioned those two, because they're starting to then look at how can they make it easier and how can they support other companies that are coming up behind them. Because mm. so, it, it is difficult to start a business in Australia. There's a lot of, there's a lot of legislation that you have to be aware of before <laughs> you do so. And I think it can be really hard, particularly for women to get startup capital, which I understand you're looking at how to support female entrepreneurs. That's exactly right. The Joyful Business Club, which now has a Facebook group and a website, and it's in its early stage. At this stage in phase A, I'm looking at training and support for women business owners and entrepreneurs. But my grand plan is to set up a peer-to-peer lending network so that women and male champions can fund women's startups in an easier way. So yeah, you're exactly right. There is a real problem here. There's been this explosion actually in the growth of female entrepreneurs. I think between 35 and 38% of women are in business. You probably know the stats much better than I do. I should explain my day job is that. (laughs) (laughs) So I know you know this. And I'm anticipating that because of COVID, it's going to grow because so many more women than men have been disproportionately affected in terms of job loss. And just needing that flexibility. When you've suddenly got kids at home and you sort of go, well, what am I doing? Like, how am I going to manage this long term? It brings everything into focus, I think. One thing I've noticed as well is much more collaboration between businesses. Even a few years ago, I was seeing it as how can you beat out your competition? And that's never been my ethos. It's how can you rise up your competition with you? And I think it's really important for female entrepreneurs to do that because often there is less money available. In terms of venture capital, when it comes to women, we look at their proportion of venture capital they get compared to male-owned businesses, and Mm, there is a huge disparity there. Huge. And I think it's important for as we're going up to go, and how do I leave that door open and put the ladder down so that I'm bringing more women to the table with me? Yeah, it's huge. Startmate, I went to one of their women's breakfasts earlier this year, and they said that last year only 2.7% of their funding went towards female-led startups. So that is a huge, huge gap, especially when women are by and large the biggest consumers. So they often have ideas about what other consumers will like. And so they're really connected with that space. There's a huge part of the puzzle that you're missing, a huge area of creativity that you're missing when you're not funding these ideas. And if you look at entrepreneurship, if you have more females on your board, if you have more females on your company, you're looking at a much better performance through that diversity. If you're a venture capital firm and you're thinking about whether or not you should increase your proportion of female entrepreneurs, if you look at the example of entrepreneurship, there's a really clear business case to do so. Wow, I'm more inspired than I was before. (laughs) Wanted to ask if you have a frugalist a tip to share. I do. 
This is for all my people like me who were really struggling with buying things in that I was buying way too much. I didn't have a huge amount of money growing up and when I was doing my first jobs in fast food, was enamored by the money that I got and just started to spend that on everything I could. I think it is really difficult because not only are you subject to advertising when you go to the shops, but if you're scrolling through your social media, like your Instagram or your Facebook, every third or fourth trial you look at is an ad. And if you've already looked at clothing, you can be sure you're getting clothing ads. For sure. Google is amazing like that. Oh, completely. They know exactly what I don't need to see. I was really struggling with buying. And I think like all young women, your weekends can become caught up in buying and getting the latest thing, getting what you think you need. My frugalistic tip is to then sell what you're not wearing. So I have a very strict limit on my wardrobe. If I buy something, I have to sell something. I have a whole article on this on Money Bites of how specifically to get into selling your clothes. But I would really recommend that if you are struggling with the concept of buying too much and it's not making you happy, that you start going through your wardrobe Marie Kondo style and then selling what you are not wearing and then putting a very strict limit in place around what's in your wardrobe. And when you buy something, you must sell something. And the really added benefit of this is you're much more likely to think before you buy because you know you've got to get rid of something. (laughs) I can sense that hubby is going to want me to adopt some of this. I think I have way too many clothes. I love clothes. How can people find you and become connected with what you do? If you head to moneybites.com, we have a blog. We have a podcast that's coming out shortly. Our first series is on young Australian leaders talking about their money because I know There's not a lot of young examples of young people having these conversations really regularly. There's a financial literacy hub there as well. All the free financial literacy resources across Australia in one place. And what we're working on through that website shortly will also be our Money Bite series for schools. Fabulous. And the financial literacy hub is is quite an extensive list. There's quite a, a few really, really good resources on there. It is. One thing I wanted to do is I was seeing a lot of the finance debate in Australia dominated by men. There's one example I can think of off the top of my head who's the best-selling author for finance (laughs) in Australia. And it's a great book, but there's also a lot of kick-ass books written by women. So I made a really conscious decision to feature those, one of which is The Joyful Frugalista. Thank you. (laughs) So I actually came across that book before I met you, and I just thought, there are so many fantastic female finance writers in Australia. If I want to see more, I need to feature and I need to promote so that I bring more women to the table. And I think that's really important as an ethos. Well, thank you so much for doing that. We've been talking with Kate Crowhurst. You can catch her on Money Bite. She's given all her socials. Make sure to follow the Joyful Frugalista Facebook group for discussions on this and other topics. And as I mentioned, we have a new Facebook group, which is the Joyful Business Club. To launch that, I am doing a book reading of Think and Grow Rich, which is Napoleon Hill's classic. You don't actually have to read the book to join. It's quite old-fashioned in its language, and so I'm doing my best to summarise some of the key points and put it in a modern context. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. She actually likes everybody. And of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. You gotta accentuate the positive Eliminate the negative Latch on to the affirmative Don't mess with Mr. In-Between 